This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. John G. Turner is professor of American religion at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. He earned his Master of Divinity from Louisville Presbyterian Theological Seminary and then his Ph.D. in American history from Notre Dame. Professor Turner's research focuses on the history of Mormonism, having published Brigham Young, Pioneer Prophet in 2012, and The Mormon Jesus, a biography in 2016, both by Harvard University Press. His most recent book, They Knew There Were Pilgrims, Plymouth Colony, and the Contest for American Liberty, chronicles the story of the English settlers who 400 years ago crossed the Atlantic on the Mayflower in order to establish a new society and a new world. They Knew They Were Pilgrims is published by Yale University Press, and that book is the topic of our conversation today. Professor Turner, welcome to Thinking in Public. Pleased to be with you. Thanks for having me back. Uh, we've had some good conversations in the past, and uh, I feel like some of those conversations are just reading your books. That's the way it, it ought to be. And so it's like an added bonus to have a conversation in voice uh, after the experience of reading a book. Your latest book, They Knew They Were Pilgrims, is, uh, is, is a text that I think will fascinate a lot of Americans and fill in a lot of gaps. The subtitle, by the way, Plymouth Colony and the Contest for American Liberty. Uh, this is a, a book that is coming out in the early months of 2020 in an unusual cultural context. And uh, people think of the pilgrims in the United States. They think naturally of, of November and of Thanksgiving. But uh, you had a particular strategy in having this book come out when it did in the year 2020. So what's behind that? Well, the basic marketing strategy, I suppose, is that it's the 400th anniversary of the Mayflower and the founding of Plymouth Colony. So I'm trying to sort of capitalize on, on that anniversary. And for me, it was an excuse to take a fresh and more detailed look at what many Americans think is a familiar story. You know, I think almost everybody grows up and encounters the pilgrims and the first Thanksgiving in elementary school and sort of thinks that's a story that they know about. And as is true with almost everything in history, there's so much more to it. And I wanted to scratch underneath the surface a bit. It raises some really interesting historical questions, especially for thinking Christians trying, trying to think these issues through. Uh, for one thing, if you just mentioned Thanksgiving, you mentioned Plymouth Colony, you mentioned uh, the, the, the pilgrims, uh, you immediately raise a host of questions that people really didn't think much about in generations past. We're not even sure how to tell this story. Uh, obviously, you've written a major academic work attempting to tell this story, but uh, it appears that the traumas right now are uh, multiple. So for one thing, we had kind of a cartoon version of, uh, of the Pilgrims and, uh, and of that first Thanksgiving. And uh, in kind of the same way you had Parson Weems with George Washington, we weren't sure how much of it was costumery and, uh, you know, kind of a, a representation and how much was actually based in historical fact. Then came the, uh, the recognition that whatever the story actually was told along those lines, it was only part of the story. And, uh, and thus you had Native Americans and you had others who were looking at these events in a very different light. And so... Uh, it, it struck me before I began reading your book, but with your book about to be read, uh, a part of the difficulty here is even knowing how to get at this story uh, in a way that will stand the test of time. 
because you've written a book published by a major scholarly press, Yale University Press. You're not writing this as an op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal. You're trying to tell a story that will last. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, uh, I think the task for students of history is always, regardless of what uh, myths or sort of reigning interpretations of the past exist, to simply go back and look at the sources And there are actually a lot of sources for 17th century Plymouth, some of which other historians have used, others, you know, mostly, mostly, you know, left alone. Uh, You know, some things are are difficult to get at. So the first Thanksgiving is really something that receives a little bit of mention in one letter by one Mayflower passenger. You know, that is something that became extraordinarily important to uh, 19th century Americans, but it wasn't an important part of the colony's own self-understanding. But there are so many, you know, there's so many other episodes that, that were important to folks at the time. The Mayflower Compact uh, was very important, even though it doesn't get all that much attention in uh, history textbooks uh, these days. Certainly, relations with the natives were very important uh, from the get-go, and everybody understood that. You know, when you look at this book, uh, I, I, reading it, believe that uh, you started in exactly the right place. And you looked in Britain at the the reign of uh, King James in particular, uh, James VI of Scotland, James I of, uh, of the United Kingdom, and uh, place this in the context of the unfolding of the, the, the English-speaking Reformation, and in particular, the rise of separatism. And uh, by the way, uh, you, you did that so well, it leads me to tell you, you need to write a book just on that, uh, which may not be your interest, but would have been mine. But uh, I really appreciated the way you laid out uh, the development of the separatists and, uh, and and set the stage for how in the world they ended up in Leiden, uh, not to mention uh on a leaky vessel trying to get across the Atlantic. So, so how did you how did you decide where to begin this story? Well, there would you know there could be a number of different starting points. You know, there have been historians who start with New England itself and the Wampanoag and other native peoples that are there. Uh, for me, because I was beginning with a focus on the Pilgrims themselves, it made sense for me to start just as you described it. Uh, with the English Reformation and its discontents, uh, the the separatists, you know, that's that is a well-known part of the story. But for me, it was surprising to learn just how loathed uh, this particular uh, religious movement was. Uh, pretty much uh, everybody else in England uh, really disdained and mocked uh, separatists for their willingness to simply flat out leave the Church of England behind and form their own congregations, which in 21st century America sounds like an an entirely unradical thing to do, uh, but at the time was illegal and incredibly controversial. You know, there were a lot of Puritans who wanted to reform the Church of England, uh, but the separatists had concluded that that simply wasn't possible. Uh, They didn't want to compromise with what they understood to be Antichrist any longer. And so they set off on their own. And from the start for them, uh, Christian liberty 
was absolutely essential. And by that they meant uh, the obligation of Christians to form their own churches and to be able to elect their own leaders and to discipline uh, themselves. And in terms of liberty in 17th century New England, different strains of that uh, basic understanding of Christian liberty were very much uh, center to my story. Well, absolutely. I, I was very, very interested in uh, how, how you wove so many different ideas together. And, and by the way, as a Baptist, which means uh, as, a, as a direct heir of that separatist tradition, uh, I felt the story very much even as I was reading it. And of course, you're talking about the names that are, are, are central to that uh, separatist tradition. It, uh, it, it, it came to the New World, especially in the context of what we talk about with the pilgrims, uh, after travail in Britain, and uh, and then you, you really offer a very fascinating chapter on what I would call kind of the, the continued threat and instability even in the Low Countries, in the Netherlands, where uh, even where there was, uh, after the peace between uh, the Netherlands and Spain, there was a period of some form of religious tolerance. Uh, actually, until you, I read your book, I had not thought about the fact that the, the collision point was just going to come a year later, with the uh, with the expiration of that treaty, um, and uh, so uh, there's really an incredible amount of drama here with those separatists having basically to risk their lives to get out of England, having risked their lives in England. Uh, they then found their lives potentially at risk again in the Netherlands, and so I, I think it's difficult for modern Americans to realize that the kind of desperation that would have led them uh, to risk crossing the Atlantic. Yeah, I mean, they had been able to organize their church as they saw fit in Leiden. So there were members of the congregation who saw no reason to go to the New World. I mean, planting a colony, really, uh, by any reasonable standard, is a rather foolhardy enterprise. So there were plenty of members of the congregation who thought they'd better stay where they were in the Netherlands, but then the pilgrims, you know, the leaders of the pilgrims, they concluded that, first of all, their Christian liberty was tenuous in the Netherlands. You know, it was fragile, as you just referenced. And they weren't sure that their children and their descendants would adhere to their religious principles in this very pluralistic environment. So, they, you know, they wanted to go somewhere where their congregation could thrive more fully and attract more sort of wavering Puritans in England to join their cause. Yeah, and uh, what they found in the Netherlands was not only a certain amount of toleration, they also found what they considered to be licentiousness. Exactly, exactly. No, in the 17th century, uh, for most people, toleration remained sort of a dirty word. You know, liberty of conscience had a much better ring to it, not, not forcing people to vi violate uh, their consciences, but to actually tolerate all sorts of religious difference and perceived heresy. That was really another matter. I had a fascinating conversation uh, some time ago with Robert Louis Wilkin, uh, mm -hmm. author of uh, a, a wonderful book on the origins of the Christian idea of liberty or the idea of Christian liberty. And, uh, and one of the issues that he pointed out was how rare it is in, 
in any previous uh, century to the 20th century to find any place where there was uh, virtually any acceptable idea of more than one religion, more than one church, uh, more than one uh, form of worship in any single community, however you define that community. And, and you make that point in your book, uh, even when it comes to the Plymouth Colony and to the Pilgrims. What, what was not yet envisioned was that there could be multiple religions uh, or multiple churches even uh, in a single community. Well, there's a number of, you know, there are a number of reasons for that. You know, there's, there's a genuine concern, I think, about heresy. There's also an understanding of religion as a public good. Um, and there's sort of a communal understanding of liberty that bumps up against more individual conceptions that we're familiar with. Um, but I'm glad you mentioned this because the pilgrims are often criticized, as Puritans are more generally, for being religious hypocrites and that they wanted religious freedom for themselves but wouldn't extend it to others. And that's true from, you know, from that particular angle. But as, as you pointed out, not a lot of 17th century uh, Englishmen envisioned religious toleration. Uh, they simply didn't agree about what the single acceptable option should be. And the pilgrims, you know, they did extend a certain amount of liberty of conscience to dissenters. They didn't, you know, they didn't compel uh, other men and women to join their church. They wouldn't even have wanted them all to. Right. And, you know, they didn't force uh, parents to have their children baptized uh, against their wishes or things like that. Uh, but they were not at all comfortable with uh, permitting, you know, religious options uh, in Plymouth. And then, of course, that r- regularly reemerges as a, as a point of conflict over the next 70 years. Uh, thinking about this, by the way, and uh, taking us back just a little bit in the telling of our story here, uh, we talk about the pilgrims as if that's the natural term or name uh, by which to designate them. Uh, in what sense did they see themselves as pilgrims? And, and next, when did it become a, uh, a convention to call, especially those who established the Plymouth Colony, uh, the pilgrims? It's a great question. So I, I've been using this anachronistic term, uh, which I do in my book because readers are simply familiar with it. But until the early 1800s, uh, that term wasn't applied to the Mayflower passengers or the Plymouth colonists. They understood themselves as pilgrims in a generically Christian sense, uh, drawing on the New Testament's uh, description of Christians as strangers and pilgrims on the earth with their eyes uh, fixed toward heaven. And William Bradford, you know, he, the, the title of my book is taken from his history, in which he says they, were, they knew they were pilgrims in that sense. Uh, only in the early 1800s did Americans begin referring to this particular group of colonists as the pilgrims. And over time, that, that stuck. Uh, and it's so conventional that I, I stick with it in my book. This is going to be a little out of sync in asking this question, but I want to ask you because it comes to my mind at the moment. Uh, amongst my interests are, uh, 
I, I guess, too many. But one of them is the rise of kind of WASP, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant culture, and a, and an English-speaking, uh, basically uh, Anglophile elite in the United States. And many of them actually, uh, you know, trace their lineage to the Mayflower list. You know, so you've got the even a scandal with the so-called Mayflower Madam, you know, years ago in, in New York City. Uh, mm-hmm. But one of the points you make is something that, that uh, I picked up on some time ago, and that is the fact that people in Boston, and especially after the, uh, the, the, the formation of, uh, of uh, Harvard University and others in the, in the area of Cambridge, they really thought Plymouth was a backwater. And, mm-hmm. uh, and even a, a, an historian as influential as Perry Miller in American intellectual history basically dismissed Plymouth as being of much importance at all. Uh, that's absolutely the case. And some of that comes from the uh, self-descriptions of William Bradford and other Plymouth Colony leaders. They describe Plymouth Colony as barren and impoverished. Uh, Massachusetts Bay Colony to the north, centered in Boston, it's more populous almost from the get-go, has so much more economic and uh, military clout has the more more prolific uh, ministers. And so very quickly, Massachusetts Bay overshadowed uh, Plymouth. And in the 19th century, popular culture uh, very much latched on to the pilgrims. Uh, But academic historians like Perry Miller uh, didn't, and they understood Plymouth Colony as an inferior intellectual backwater. You know, I I find that the ministers and leaders of Plymouth Colony actually are just as erudite and connected with transatlantic Protestant uh, debates about religion as their counterparts in Massachusetts Bay. So it's a much smaller colony. It's marginally uh, prosperous, but it's an important part of the whole. Well, and without it, you can't tell the story of the whole. Uh, it, arguably, there isn't a whole, uh, and uh, that that looms large in the American consciousness and our own understanding of our national story. But it also looms large theologically and in the history of of religion, and in particular Protestant Christianity in the United States. Uh, one of the interesting questions uh, I, I think that has to be pondered and uh, should be fertile material for historians for a long time is how the Puritan tradition the larger Puritan tradition that would have included, most importantly, the Puritans in the Church of England, uh, became so important in the establishment of the United States and the form of Protestantism that took shape in the United States. And uh, and it was the separatists who were uh, the most marginalized, as you, as you tried to point out, and thus as a result of desperation and some opportunity came to the New World. Um, I was looking at some historical documents just recently, people— um, you know, connected uh, with uh, uh, Brown University, uh, Francis Wayland and others, and, and they were looking at all this from Rhode Island. And, you know, the, the, the odd thing is, is that by the time you get to the middle of the 18th century, it is clear that the separatists are winning in numbers, and the, right. uh, the others are winning in uh, gaining cultural control. Right. Well, a lot of the issues surrounding that separatist impulse, they, they reemerge in the middle of the 18th century at the time of the Great Awakening and then going forward. And so you get new generations of American Protestants who see the existing congregations of New England and elsewhere as 
uh, corrupt and not true to the gospel and as unregenerate. And so the cycle sort of repeats itself uh, later on. Uh, one thing I think is interesting to think about Plymouth Colony is you have that sort of very magisterial Puritan uh, colony to the north in Massachusetts Bay. And then you have the far more separatist and religiously tolerant, in a way, colony of Rhode Island. And Plymouth, Plymouth is between the two. And so you see its inhabitants really in the middle of that argument. And there's a lot of division within the colony about the proper extent of religious toleration and liberty of conscience. And it's a reminder, really, that Puritanism wasn't monolithic and had a lot of internal debates about these issues. Let me go with you into Plymouth Colony for a few moments. Let me let me track one issue related to this. So um, if you're a historian of the West trying to figure out the massive changes that arrive with modernity, one of them is the separation of throne and altar, uh, so that you could have... Uh, you could have some kind of conceptual separation between a religious sphere and a legal sphere. Uh, when you get to Plymouth Colony, uh, I, I found your book fascinating on, at every turn. I, I also felt like I want to ask you some questions, such as, uh, was a part of the, uh, of the dynamic in Plymouth the fact that the, the necessary uh, application of church discipline was seen as central to the cohesiveness of the entire colony. In other words, was was it possible under those circumstances to conceive of uh, of, of how discipline and order and morality uh, could, could be maintained outside of what was essentially uh, the exercise of church discipline? Well, I would actually say that you know, throughout the history of Plymouth Colony, only a minority of the settlers actually belong to the churches. So those who do uh, certainly face church discipline for transgressions such as adultery or things like that. Right. Uh, but the civil government really is, you know, has to vigorously punish those transgressions as well, because so many people don't uh, qualify themselves or choose to qualify themselves for church membership. So what you actually have is you have parallel uh, disciplinary yep. structures of, of church and state. And so sometimes you'll have individuals, you know, they have to go through almost two tribunals uh, for an offense such as adultery. They, they might be punished uh, by the civil government, but then they also face church discipline. And so that comes up a number of times in the colony's history. Yeah. But what's inconceivable, is it not, is the fact that there would be two different moral systems of judgment. I don't mean mechanisms of, uh, of uh, verdict, but uh, right. in other words, the cohesiveness of the colony required they basically share the same moral verdict on adultery as, uh, as uh, an assault upon the, the, the covenant of the community itself. No, that, that's, that's certainly true. And for the most part, these two establishments, they are fairly uh, cohesive. The ministers of the colony, they, they are frustrated at times because they want uh, the civil government to do more to enforce the religious order. Over time, they actually, I think, move away from some of the early uh, 
principles of separatism and want a stronger sort of state religious establishment. But for the most part, the magistrates are actually quite, uh, you know, resistant to that. And they, at times, uh, do things such as mandate church attendance and then back away from it. They punish Quakers for a time and then back away from it, which makes the uh, colony's ministers actually rather unhappy. So there's, there's a fair amount of back and forth and tension um, between these two parts of the establishment that you could call them. When you uh, look at both the, the religious nature of the colony, the Christian nature of the colony, and then of the, uh, and of the church, in your book you say this, for the pilgrims, a true church was a congregation formed when Christians covenanted with each other to walk in the ways of God. The covenant was, John Robinson taught, the true essential property of the visible church. Um, as a Baptist, I resonate with that entirely uh, as, a, uh, as a covenant community. But uh, that raises an interesting question to me, and it's, it's rather central to your book. Uh, when you look at the Mayflower Compact, it, it too, compact's just another word for covenant in this sense. So the, the entire political superstructure, the, uh, what Charles Taylor, I guess, would call the social imaginary, was based upon the idea that human relationships should be covenant relationships, marriage, church, and a colony as well. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's absolutely true. And a number of, his, of historians, including recently, have noted you know, parallels between the Mayflower Compact and the church covenant of separatist congregations. I certainly think it's there. I don't see the Mayflower Compact as an especially uh, sacred document uh, in the sense of, you know, I think the references to God that are in it are, are sort of window dressing, and it's not a grand statement of uh, principles uh, by any stretch. But what it is, and one thing that ties these two together, is there's a sense that the validity of a community uh, rests on the consent of its members, or, you know, at least on the consent of some of its members. And so that sort of democratic principle that, that was, was at the heart of the separatist understanding of the church, uh, it at least carries over partly into their understanding of political liberty, that laws and officers don't have validity unless they rest on the consent of the body politic. So then, what would you argue is the influence of the Mayflower Compact on, uh, say, the American constitutional order, this unique uh, experiment in ordered liberty? To what, to, what, what is the influence that you would trace there? Well, I'm afraid I might disappoint you by saying not, not much direct influence. The Mayflower Compact was very important to the political leaders of Plymouth Colony, when they would meet periodically to revise the colony's laws, they would have the Mayflower Compact read aloud. They understood it as fundamental to their political order. But once Plymouth Colony went by the wayside, the, uh, the compact, in terms of having any importance, wasn't really revived until after the American Revolution. But that basic idea of... Uh, consent. I mean, that was so integral to English political thought as a whole, 
you know, stretching back right. to Magna Carta, to the petition of right and, and other contemporary issues that although they might have understood its particularities differently, uh, most English uh, political thinkers, especially reformers, uh, understood that as a fundamental principle. So although I wouldn't say the Mayflower Compact really influences that trajectory, uh, it reflects that basic uh, principle, which then gets articulated in different ways over time. So you actually didn't disappoint me. I expected that's how you would answer it. That sets me up to ask another question, which is another one of those questions that maybe we ask more as uh, people of our own times than, uh, than we might expect others to ask. To what extent would you have thought that, the say, the framers of the constitutional order, those who were arguing out the arguments of this new federal system, how aware would they have been of the Mayflower Compact at that time? Because one one of the strange, you know, twists and turns of history is that some of these documents and events are actually better known to people now, especially to historians, than they would have been to people in between. Sure. Absolutely. No, it's, this is another example. You know, the so for the Mayflower passengers, you know, they become known as the pilgrims uh, after the American Revolution. This agreement, which at the time is referred to, uh, I think sometimes as a compact, sometimes as a combination, it becomes known as the Mayflower Compact in the decades after the American Revolution as well. I think they would probably have been aware of it because in 18th century histories of New England, certainly Plymouth is part of the story. And I think the agreement on the Mayflower would have been referenced. But in terms uh, of being a source for political principles, uh, I don't think it is something that the framers of the American Republic are looking to. And, you know, I think, I think one reaction against Plymouth in recent decades stems from the fact that 19th century Americans placed far too much historical weight on the Pilgrims and uh, Plymouth Colony. They did draw pretty straight lines from what happened in the cabin uh, of the Mayflower uh, to the Constitutional Convention. And those sorts of, you know, that, that sort of argument really couldn't hold water over time. And so I think there was a reaction against that, which was to say that, you know, Plymouth Colony really doesn't matter very much. And I think you can, you can concede that 19th century um, lionization of the pilgrims uh, sometimes just bordered on the ridiculous. But I think nevertheless, then one can find value in thinking about um, how 17th century Plymouth colonists, how they debated the meaning of liberty. I, you know, for me, that's, that, there's a lot of import in the story if we get away from uh, some earlier superficial conclusions. In recent decades, the scholarly pursuit of history has shifted a great deal, and there would be many ways to look at that shift or those shifts. One of them would have to be the shift from writing about the major figures of history, the so-called great man theory of history, to writing about the lives of people otherwise hidden from history. 
The Best History Now combines both, and this book by Professor John G. Turner is an example. They Knew There Were Pilgrims looks at the pilgrims and at the Plymouth Colony. Not only the names that resound through American history, but the names that do not. Sometimes those are the stories that are most interesting. You deal a lot with the uh, realities of life from the primary sources that uh, that you've been uh, basically ransacking in the best historical sense. And uh, I, I appreciated much of the tangibility of that. I was particularly touched by your 17th chapter on the children of life and death. Uh, childhood in, in, in such a context, so difficult. And I was particularly touched within that chapter by a quotation from the Massachusetts Bay poet Anne Bradsheet, who spoke of young children in an age of such high rates of infant mortality, saying they're that they were like as a bubble or the brittle glass. Kind of a heartbreaking statement. Talk about that. That really resonate, resonated with me as well as a parent. It's actually my favorite chapter in the book, so I'm really tickled that, that you mention it. Um, you know, inf- yeah, rates of infant and child mortality were extremely high in 17th century New England, um, as they were in most parts of the world. And so I, you know, I sort of kept coming across families that would lose a number of, of children and infants. And, you know, there was an older idea that um, 17th century uh, people were sort of inured to this sort of loss because it was so common. You know, they didn't feel it as much because they expected it. And, you know, just the opposite is true. Um, there was one Massachusetts Bay uh, colonist, Samuel Sewell, who half of his, I think, 14 children uh, died in childhood. And he at one point records in his diary that he dreamed that they were all dead. You know, just that tangible sense of loss and grief. And I found it very interesting the way that Puritan uh, ministers address this. They, they warn people against excessive grief, and they even condemned excessive grief as idolatry. And even though they certainly would have understood themselves as good uh, theological descendants of John Calvin, uh, they sort of made an exception uh, in terms of the decrees of predestination when it came to infants and very young children. And they assured themselves and each other that those children uh, were in the bosom of their Savior in heaven. Uh, I find it very touching uh, to read about the way that they grappled with these issues, Mm -hmm. not just theologically, but then also practically within their households. You know, uh, sometimes through the myths of history, it's, it's hard to imagine the actual context in which something happened or is recorded. But I was particularly also touched by uh, your uh, recounting of references to John Clapp, a uh, 13-year-old boy uh, who had died. And uh, as you say, there was no particular uh, obvious uh, transgression in his 13-year-old life. But nonetheless, he evidenced uh, mournfulness for his sinfulness. He longed to be with Christ. He uh, he sought and uh, and avidly gave himself to the preaching of the Word of God. But he had a very long illness, of which he died at age 13. And uh, uh, Urian Oakes, the minister at Cambridge and president of Harvard, uh, spoke of him as, quote, 
quietly breathing his soul into the arms of his blessed Savior. Uh, it's just an amazing, heartbreaking, very poetic theology there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, you know, there are that I found touching. Also, the idea of families gathered around um, the bedside of a dying child, maybe not in fully theologically consistent ways, but really... Um, with a strong belief that their prayers would usher uh, their loved ones into the presence of God and Jesus Christ. I find, I find those scenes very, very touching. They, they give a, a window into really the practical theology or practical religious lives of the people of that time. Yeah, by the way, Oakes, that minister at Cambridge and president of Harvard, spoke of uh, John Clapp, who died at 13, in, in such incredible language, saying that the uh, the boy was, quote, a young old man, full of grace. Right, wise beyond his years. Yes. And, and you know, who, you know so, some of those stories, they, they could have elements of the legendary sure. uh, to them, and I think sometimes maybe were held up for others as almost impossible uh, ideals of piety. Um, but, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't discount them either. Yeah, and the, 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 the words he spoke saying that the boy had been full of grace, though not full of days. You know, there was, a, there was a, uh, also, just jumping to another issue here, there was a facility with the English language, with uh, both poetry and prose. And by the way, you, you, you recount the fact that there was a lot of poetry in this culture. I think the average American thinks of Puritanism and, uh, and the, the pilgrims in a monochrome of black and white and maybe some gray. But there, there was an enormous amount of color here. Mm-hmm. I think that's very much true of William Bradford. You know, his history of Plymouth Colony is the single most important source for anyone writing about the Pilgrims and Plymouth Colony. And his prose history, he also wrote some poetry, which I actually think isn't so great. But his prose history is just full of wit. Uh, it is, you know, full of, of eloquence. You know, he could joke about uh, non-separatists who couldn't hack it because the, of the mosquitoes uh, in New England, that they should stay away until they become mosquito-proof, things like that. Uh, so, yeah, the, there can be a lot of pleasure in uh, reading uh, the writings of 17th century New Englanders. On the issue of liberty and freedom, that's really where we began, and uh, I, I think to, uh, to that we must return. You conclude your book, by saying that uh, the Pilgrims and the other inhabitants of Plymouth Colony left behind both a complicated legacy of human bondage and unresolved debates about liberty. Uh, So your book begins with argument and ends with argument, and it's a continuing argument. Uh, What does it mean that the Pilgrims sought liberty and in many ways defended liberty, uh, but then also denied others liberty? How do we you know, 400 years later from their departure from uh, the Netherlands. How do, how do we think about that? Sure. Well, for, you know, one thing to recognize is that from the start, uh, there were uh, natives deprived of their freedom in New England. That was the case even before the Mayflower uh, reached uh, Cape Cod. Uh, some European ship captains and traders uh, would sometimes kidnap uh, native people bring them back to 
Europe sometimes sell them as slaves, sometimes groom them as navigators and interpreters. Um, you know, native slavery was not common during the lifetime of the pilgrims themselves, but in the later years of the colony, uh, native slavery was actually rather ubiquitous uh, in uh, Plymouth Colony and in other parts of New England. So I think that that is a really important part of the story. Uh, there were also African slaves in Plymouth Colony uh, during its later decades. So it's imp very important to have that be part of the story as well. Um, and then in terms of the, what you just quoted from my book, um, you know, it, maybe it would be easier and more comfortable if the pilgrims could teach us a really simple story about liberty. One of the things that Plymouth Colony teaches us is that debates about liberty proceeded throughout the colony's 70-year history. You know, and, and Americans who might be today uh, distraught at the amount of disunity and conflict over the meaning of liberty in contemporary America, they might take some comfort from the fact that, you know, those debates were very much present uh, from the start and they didn't have a clear conclusion. And that's not necessarily the end of the world. The middle point between uh, 400 years ago and uh, when we're having this conversation now would be marked by the bicentennial when mm -hmm. 200 years ago Daniel Webster uh, spoke of Plymouth. Uh, so uh, what role was played by Daniel Webster in kind of inventing the, uh, the pilgrim story as we know it now and the significance of, of the Plymouth colony? So Webster's bicentennial address uh, in Plymouth, you know, with lavish references to the rock, uh, certainly does set the stage for a lot of 19th century uh, lionization of the pilgrims. Uh, there's, there's no doubt about that. He's, not, he's certainly not the first um, or the only um, American at the time to uphold them as paragons of uh, republicanism. Uh, but no, that, that is significant. And you know, that, that sort of regular celebration of the pilgrims uh, persisted and really grew uh, to be more than a local or even Massachusetts thing, uh, but really grew to be an American tradition in the 19th century. You deal with a lot of very serious theological material in your book. It's not a history of theology. It's, a, it's, a, it's not even the major theme, but you deal with everything from the halfway covenant to... Uh, you know, arguments and controversies over the sacraments, the nature of the church, uh, the responsibility of Christians in this age and in the age to come. Uh, th this is a massive work of research and of scholarship. Uh, you've dedicated a significant portion of your life to this. So it, it, it seems to me that uh, having written on Brigham Young and, uh, and Bill Bright, uh, it leads me to ask, well, what are you working on now? What, did this lead to another subject area that you're now uh, seeing as a major project, or, or are you turning from this entirely to something else? Uh, well, that's a, that's a great question. Um, there's no shortage of great topics out there. Um, and you referenced my biography of Brigham Young, which is about 19th century Mormonism. And I'm actually uh, doing a project next that is closely related to that. I'm working on a biography of Joseph Smith at the moment. Had some unanswered questions. 
that uh, that next project project hopefully will answer. Well, I will uh, look forward to that with tremendous anticipation because there are multiple reasons why the story of Joseph Smith has a lot of uh, gaps at the at the present time. Uh, but there, this may be exactly the right time to try to go back and uh, and, and tell that story anew. Uh, you became a historian as a profession, and uh, now you've you've written several major works. Uh, this one published by Yale University Press. Uh, tell us the story a little bit about how you became an historian. How how did that happen? Well, for me, it it actually has a relation to, a relationship to growing up growing up in church. First of all, reading the Bible, which is not only history but has a lot of history in it. So that genre of history, I think, appealed to me simply because of that. Uh, when I was in high school, I read a biography of Martin Luther by Roland Bainton, Here I Stand. Uh, that really resonated with me. And so, in part, I became a historian of Christianity because I wanted to figure out what had shaped the Christianity of my own day and life. And so actually I, I began with a pro- project on you know, late 20th century American evangelicalism because that's the subculture in which I grew up and I wanted to, wanted to understand it better. And since then I've tried to do a little bit less navel-gazing and move a little further back in time and have become you know, more taken with the longer history of Christianity. Well, you have moved from the 20th uh, to the uh, 19th uh, to the 17th century, so uh, that's, a, that's a certain trajectory as well. Uh, uh, by this token, you'll be writing about the Reformation next. Uh, I say that tongue-in-cheek. But uh, I, uh, I, I did note that you've moved kind of backwards in history. Uh, that changes your source material, doesn't it? Because I, I, you wrote about Bill Bright and Campus Crusade for Christ first, and that would appear to me to, to present several challenges. One is that uh, it's really close in, in history, right. and, uh, and, and so you have the advantage of having so many people alive who would have known Bill Bright well, uh, but at the same time, historical verdicts and even some materials are probably distant. And then Brigham Young, uh, for which there's a huge historical record, but obviously no way to talk about anyone with anyone who was his contemporary, uh, mm-hmm. even more so with uh, the, the Plymouth Colony. The, 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 those appear to be different historical challenges. They are. So I did a lot of oral histories when uh, writing the history of Bill Bright and Campus Crusade for Christ. And, you know, because I didn't have access to as many documents. And so, no, the, the, the projects from the 19th and 17th century, uh, they are different. If I were going to go further back in time, I'd really have to brush up on my Latin, though, which is really in an embarrassing state. So maybe that's why I'm moving back forward to the 19th century. Well, and uh, the, the, I think the language issues explain, at least in part, why there have been so many dissertations and really outstanding works done on uh, on the uh, English-speaking Reformation and uh, Puritanism and, and, and so many other topics. Uh, as president of an evangelical theological seminary, I'll tell you, what, one of the difficulties is, uh, is hiring people uh, over time who are uh, scholars of the Reformation, because in almost every case other than the English-speaking Reformation, that requires enormous facility uh, in a, another language. Uh, 
and uh, so there, there are some there are some real challenges going uh, both ways uh, in in this historical work. You know, one handicap that I faced both when I began writing about Brigham Young, and then even well, just as much with the 17th century, is I didn't grow up with the King James Bible. So when I read sources, or at least at first. I didn't necessarily pick up on all of the biblical allusions that were there. And, uh, you know, it took me a while to uh, get a little bit up to speed uh, that way. So that, that was one interesting challenge for me. I think that's a challenge for a lot of historians today doing earlier periods of American or English history. Uh, if they don't have facility with the King James, you actually miss a, uh, miss a great deal. Well, I should say, and I can't let that just go. How in the world did you grow up in American evangelicalism as a subculture and, uh, and, and not have pretty close proximity to the King James Bible? Well, I grew up Presbyterian, not Baptist. I don't know. It might be that simple. <laughs> there you so go. I, I, I grew up on the NIV, uh, really. Yeah. Um, That's also and... a generational thing, uh, Professor. So uh, just to say that I, I, I am too old to have grown up with the NIV. Uh, <laughs> But there is a Baptist uh, subculture there as well. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go right ahead. Oh, no, no, no. That, that, that was the extent of the answer. Yeah. Uh, it is interesting that in, uh, in the evangelical world, uh, there, uh, so in the Bible church movement, even in people about my generation, a little younger, uh, the, uh, many of them lack a real familiarity with the King James because of the New American Standard that became kind of the, uh, the, the, the obvious text to preach uh, with its uh, formal equivalents. And so there, there was that. Then there was NIV, and the Presbyterian ties there make perfect sense. Um, in the years I've been president of uh, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, but it, that's been a long time, almost three decades, especially in the beginning, my secretary would put on my travel itinerary whether a church was King James or not. So that doesn't happen anymore, by the way. But it used to be—it used to be that she would tell me, you know, just just remember. And there was one time in particular I arrived at the wrong church with a New American Standard and was told I needed to bring a Bible. And uh, so <laughs> <laughs> that that is—I'm uh, just old enough to remember that because that has not happened in a very, very, very long time. Yeah, uh, yeah, but but I could see where that would be an issue, and and I loved your book. Uh, they knew they were pilgrims for many reasons, but one of them is I loved the primary source material, not just for the obvious historical value, but just because so much of it was fascinating to me, just as a Christian and as a theologian and and a historical theologian. Um, I, I'm afraid future historians aren't going to have as much material when they look back if they're allowed. Uh, on the 20th and 21st centuries. For one thing, a lot of this is just not going to be written down anywhere. Right. Well, I think that's actually a real issue. Um, and so many things are ephemeral now. You know, digital sources, social media, email. Um, I think in a way, there will be an overabundance of sources. The question the is data whether... Dump. Yeah, wh- whether there will be the same level of access to intimate sources that you say get from 19th century journals and diaries and memoirs. Um, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Uh, you teach now on the history faculty of George Mason University. Uh, you did your Ph.D. in American history at uh, the University of Notre Dame. 
Speak to a young person thinking about history as a scholarly pursuit and perhaps even as a profession. What, what, what would be your words to that, uh, that young person now? It's a great question. I think the first thing I'd say is history can both be an interest uh, and it can be an academic discipline and a career. Um, I think, you know, my own belief as a Christian is that all of us actually do have some interest in the past and are very reliant on it. And I think we, we sort of can all cultivate that curiosity. In terms of history as a career, so to sort of the academic discipline of history is a little bit different than just curiosity about the past. You know, it's, it's being enticed, enticed by arguments about the past, uh, arguments that should be rooted in primary sources, um, but often, you know, arguments that are sifted by debate with other historians. So that's sort of the academic practice of history. There are also historians uh, doing all sorts of different things. You know, obviously education, curation, uh, archival work, digital history. Uh, there's many, many ways to be a historian besides uh, holding an academic post and uh, writing monographs. So I think if history is something that people love, uh, they can find many ways to make it a career. And I certainly think there are, there are more opportunities for history majors than, you know, articles about the decline of the liberal, liberal arts and the job market uh, might lead one to believe. The book is They Knew They Were Pilgrims, Plymouth Colony and the Contest for American Liberty. The author is Professor John G. Turner. Professor Turner, thank you for joining me today for Thinking in Public. Thank you very much, Dr. Mueller. Great to be with you. I'm thankful for this conversation with Professor Turner. You know, I think there are a lot of Americans who all of a sudden remember and maybe think about the pilgrims about November of every year. We even talked about why that's so. And we've also talked about why the story is so much larger. It plays out on such a larger canvas than Americans in their imagination often conceive. It's a bigger story in American history, in the history of the English-speaking peoples, in the history of American Christianity, in American political science and history. All of that gets woven together in this story and woven together extremely well. Again, the title, They Knew They Were Pilgrims, by the title. Professor Turner indicates it's not just that we call them the pilgrims. It's not even just that they were pilgrims. They knew they were pilgrims, using language going all the way back to William Bradford. And, of course, the subtitle of the book, Plymouth Colony and the Contest for American Liberty, reminds us that there are arguments to be found here, as is always the case in history at its best and history done well. And this is a book that presents the arguments in a way that is very honest in the year 2020. The arguments will continue. Future generations, if they have the opportunity, will pick up these arguments and take them far beyond what we might even now imagine. But they're not going to be able to make those arguments without retracing these arguments, just as Professor Turner has gone back to the arguments as they emerged in the 17th century and beyond. They knew they were pilgrims. Yes, indeed. They were very ardent in their concern for and their yearning for liberty. That's true. How does this argument continue? That's a story still to be told. 
Thanks again to my guest, John Turner, for thinking with me today. If you enjoyed today's episode of Thinking in Public, you'll find more than 100 of these conversations at the website albertmuller.com under the tab Thinking in Public. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.